You know, the passage just before us this week in Acts chapter 18, we're going to turn there in just a minute, you can, you can get a head start, but, but the passage just before us really sets the gospel on trial. It's, it's a bigger deal than we might realize. What's at issue here? What's happening? Uh, this could be the moment that Christians lose a lot of freedom in terms of how they can express their faith in the public sphere. Now, you might feel like that sounds something like our moment today. It seems like there's pressures in our society, and not merely in our country. In fact, in other countries, it's even worse, that, that more and more faith is being excluded out of the public sphere. That your faith needs to be a private thing. It's something you should keep to yourself. Certainly don't bother anybody else with it. That seems to be the, the mantra today that's being foisted upon us. Well, it's not new. It's been tried before, but we are experiencing it. Some of the ways that it looked like, as I was going through this, trying to, you, know, you hear lots of things, and we know there's the, there was this court case, and there was that baker, and there was that photographer, and, 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 and these kind of cases that wove their way through the courts. But, but um, as I was just digging back, was this an isolated thing, a couple of instances here or there, or is it bigger than that? And I was surprised at the different kind of range where people are saying, keep quiet about your faith. I'll give you some examples. One, one school, school, school division, this story comes out of Canada, a, 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 a school division in, in the province of Alberta ordered a particular private school, Cornerstone Christian Academy, to refrain from reading or studying any scripture that could be considered offensive to particular individuals. So, we're going to figure out what we're going to study here. Now, we can't be something that not will be, but could be offensive to some person. That's an awful lot of this. Because a lot of this has something to say about us that is not terribly flattering about us. And some people could be offensive. This whole notion of uh, uh, there's a God that we have to answer to. So this Christian school is really hindered in their ability to use their Bible at all if such a decree would stand. A Christian couple sued after their foster children were taken away from them out of their care because they refused to tell the children that Easter was about the Easter bunny and the Easter bunny is real. They wanted to tell them something different about Easter, as you can imagine. In February of 2017, last year, a Christian evangelist was accused of a hate crime locked in a cell because a 19-year-old had asked him what God said about homosexuality, so he told them the story of Adam and Eve out of Genesis chapter 2 and 3. In May, a year earlier, 2016, two evangelical Christians were charged with hate crimes because they were distributing a pamphlet that included a man's testimony of conversion to Christ and that he had abandoned a previous lifestyle. Public universities all around our country more and more are, are excluding Christian clubs from being recognized on-campus clubs unless they don't discriminate at all concerning their club's membership or their club's leadership. Now, typically, these clubs will be open to anybody that wants to attend, but their leadership agree with a certain statement of faith and a statement of conduct. We believe these things together that the leadership shares. 
much like joining a church. But the public universities say, no, 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 that's discriminatory. You can't make some, require that for someone to be a leader in your group, they have to be a Christian. That's odd for a Christian group, right? That you would have leaders of the Christian groups who were, what, Muslim? Jewish? Atheist? That's the kind of world that we live in, and basically it's this. You're free to believe what you want to believe in your own head, but don't bother the rest of us with it because we might be offended. We don't want to hear it anymore. We don't want people to hear it anymore. Now, okay, that happens. Is that new now? Is that, is, is that the, the, the terribleness of the age that we're in, or is this something that's, that's happened before? That happens really all along through history. I think it's another one of those things. You've, you've heard me say it before, but I think a lot is explained by Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us cast off their cords from us? This is human rebellion. And we see it in all kinds of manifestations, but there it is. That's what it looks like. Well, I think we can be encouraged when you get a little pushback, I remember hearing years ago, when you, you throw a rock down a dark alley and you hear a yell, it means you hit something. Somebody's tired of hearing something, it may be because they've heard something. Maybe it's making them feel uncomfortable. And that could be a good thing. Now, you don't want to leave people uncomfortable. You want to bring them to the point of hope. You want to see them come to the point of, of rejoicing and joy and forgiveness and reconciliation with God and out of that others. But sometimes, if your experience is like mine, that begins with some discomfort about what God has to say about me as me. So, Acts chapter 18, well really these several chapters that we've been following Paul on mission in the second missionary journey, we keep seeing Paul run into opposition. The things that he's saying are not the things that everybody wants to hear. One town after another, he's, he's, he's uh, been there for a short period of time and, and has to move on. It gets too hot. It gets too, there, there's a riot here. There's pressure there. And, and Paul moves to the next city. And here in Corinth, he, he settles down a little longer. It's said that he was there for a year and a half. And, and yet, he doesn't remain there without, again, the issue coming up. We don't want to hear anymore what he's got to say. And in the story now, the government is going to be used. The one group of people are going to, are going to bring charges against him, file charges, bring him before the governor and his, his, his legal tribunal saying, this man shouldn't be speaking these things any longer. And that's, that, that tribunal, that's before the, uh, what, what's, what's called, you may think of it as the Bema seat there in Corinth. And, and just so we can get our bearings, so that as I, as I read the passage, I want to just show you a couple of photos. Uh, well, put one picture first and then a photo that, that describe what this place looked like. Now, there's downtown Corinth. That's not the whole city, but that's kind of the downtown central area with a lot of the public facilities, temples, theaters, and so forth. And up in the left corner there is what's kind of the downtown square called the Roman Forum. And what was different about the Forum in Corinth, if we zoom in on that picture a little bit, instead of just being a completely open square, the Roman Forum in Corinth also had the central shops 
some shops and offices. There was probably a coffee barista, you know, little things like that. They're in the middle that were very convenient. But in the very middle of that, in the center of that, was the governor's tribunal, the proconsul's tribunal. And this was the ruler sent from Rome for all of the Greece and Achaia province. And he ruled that from Corinth. It was, the, it was the governing city. And when he would make a public decree, maybe has a big speech or announcement, or when he would hear certain public complaints, charges, and cases, those would occur at that seat. Now, you can actually see that same bima today. I have a photo of it. So stand right in front of, this is in that forum area, that's that tribunal, that bema seat, and up above it you can see the, what's called the Acrocorinth, that's the high city, that's, uh, there, there's a fortress up there, kind of the last lines of defense for an ancient city, but, um, so it's kind of an imposing view, if you were called to account, if you were brought up on charges, and you're standing there before this tribunal with that massive, and there's this, all these big buildings behind you and the governor and all of his staff are seated up there up on that platform above you and you're going to make your case and it's no there's no question about who's in charge here it's meant to be an intimidating scene and that's the scene that we come to in Acts chapter 18 beginning at verse 12 Acts chapter 18 and verse 12 if you're using the church bible in front of you you'd find us on I think page 927 927. But actually, I'm going to back up a couple of verses. I want to start again at verse 9. Because what happens in verse 12 and following is based on the promise. We're seeing worked out what our Lord said in verse 9. In verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Doesn't mean they won't attack you, but they won't attack you to harm you. They won't be successful in their intent. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio, so in the middle of that year and a half that Paul is continuing in Corinth, in the midst of that time, as we align the dates, the known dates of when Paul would have arrived in Corinth and when Gallio becomes, he's a historical figure, when he arrives and, and has a year as proconsul there. So it's during the time that Paul is there that Gallio arrives. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. And brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And so Paul stays many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and sisters and set sail for Syria with him, Priscilla and Aquila. And at Centria, which is the port of Corinth, on his way out, there at Centria, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And then they came to Ephesus, they eventually, he, they get to Jerusalem, and then to, to um, Antioch, the church that had sent them out in the first place. As I said, in a nutshell, big picture, this is the fulfillment of the Lord's words to Paul 
in particular, I am with you. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. No one's going to attack you to harm you. But then they come and attack. They, they, they see this opportune chance when the, there's a new proconsul in town. And this guy is somebody. Gallio, I, I was reading, Gallio was the brother of Seneca. Seneca, that's a Roman name we've heard before. But then I was reading more and it said, no, no, Gallio was the son of a man named Seneca, the famous Roman orator. And now I'm confused. Somebody's saying this and somebody's saying that. You ever get an argument with somebody about that? He's his brother. No, no, he's his son. Some of the silly things we can get an argument in. I read a little further and somebody else tells me, Seneca, the orator, had a son named Seneca who is the philosopher. So Seneca has a son named Seneca. Kind of sounds like Bob's dad named Robert had a son named Robert. Sometimes we're not so imaginative with our names, right? Such it was with the Senecas as well. But that's a family in Rome that everybody knew. That's the family that Gallio was from. Gallio, before he comes as the governor here in Greece and Achaia, he is the mayor, kind of like an, an office that, that, that we would think of as the mayor. But he's, he's the head of the judicial system and the security as well for the city of Rome. He's doing that for five years. He's, he's, a, he's an important political figure in his day. And uh, now he comes, and this Gallio is the governor. This is a, a Rome for the Romans kind of guy, and the Jews see this as an opportunity to deal a death blow to this Christian movement that from one synagogue after another is, is um, well, it's invading on their turf. It's drawing people away into these new groups, out of the synagogue, into the home of, of Titius Justice next door. What are we going to do about this? I know what we can do. We'll tell the governor. You see, the, the, uh, and so the Jews, it says, first of all, the Jews in verse 12 made a united attack on Paul. They say, he is persuading people to worship contrary to the law. What's that all about? Well, First of all, let's look at who's bringing the charges. The Jews are making a united attack. They're trying to stop Paul from proclaiming his gospel. We get that much of it. But, but it looks like the Jews, Israelites, are the bad people here in the story. And sometimes people feel like the New Testament is kind of anti-Jewish. The Jewish people are always the bad guy. Actually, the Jewish people are filling the church. There are some religious leaders within the synagogues who take offense at that. They differ with that, but the New Testament is not, is not anti-Jewish or anti-Israel. This is the hope of Israel that's being proclaimed. And so there's this united attack, but it's not a matter of Israel or Jewish people. It's a matter of religious people. I say that because I think there's something for us to learn from that. There's, in this, we take the, this, this passage as a whole, and it reminds us, the Lord has said, my microphone just went way off to the side, didn't it? Getting more and more echoey. We're going to hook that around the ear there. A little better. Okay. The, the, um, so, big picture, the Lord says to Paul, I've got this. I've got you. Keep going. We could take that. We could draw the line right there. Thank you, Lord. There's an example of what you promised. Promises made. Promises kept. Here we go. But, we could go further than that. There, there are some things in the midst of this that we could learn something from. 
One of them is this religious attack that comes out of religious blinders. Think of it. Who's bringing the charge? We would not be surprised when, when uh, those, those who had a slave girl who had these demonic powers that Paul relieves her of, cast out that demon, and now she's, she's no good to them to make money off of anymore, and they want to bring charges against Paul. That makes sense to us. But Who is Paul talking about? Paul is talking about Jesus, who is the Christ. Paul is talking about the Messiah. Paul is talking about the hope of Israel. He's going to use that line later, by the way. He's going to say, I'm on trial for the hope of Israel and for the resurrection of the dead. That's what the issues really are. Israel should be all around that. The Jewish people, synagogue after synagogue, should be all around it. And many of them are. But sometimes we can have our religious blinders on. Sometimes we can be so comfortable in the way things are in our religious show, in our program, in how things are, that we miss what God is doing, what God is saying, what God has provided for us. That's what's going on here. Now, there's something here to warn us about religious blinders, religious traditions. Beware. Remember, Jesus confronted the the Pharisees, and he said, you have taken the traditions of men and set them over and above the commandments of God. There are still churches today that say our church tradition is the authority by which we will interpret what this Bible says. We would say our Bible, which, can, which is God's word, this must interpret and judge our traditions and what we're going to do. That we can easily... Now, Baptists, a Baptist church like ours is, is not inherently traditional, not liturgically traditional in the way that some higher church denominations are because in church history, our churches came out of a movement that was expressly anti-tradition. We tossed the traditions aside and said, we want to get back to the New Testament. That's what churches in our background several hundred years ago did. And we, and we, we follow after that heritage, hopefully, and yet still. If we're honest with ourselves, we get comfortable about the way we do things. And there can be blinders there. I still remember a dear, a dear saint, a wonderful woman, a godly woman who, who had served the Lord all her life, I don't even remember exactly what the change was that the church was making. And in this change, it was a change that was taking from a a practice of the way things had been done, but this seems to be a more biblical way of doing it. And so that change was being made. And I remember her, as she was wrestling with this, and she made the statement. She said, I know it's biblical, but it's just not Baptist. That's a wonderful thing to say. And to admit how we wrestle with these things, right? We easily get comfortable. What's happening here? What is it that would cause Jewish people to lose sight of their own hope? I mean, they're scattered abroad among the nations. They they they. They, they, they have been scattered from the Babylonian captivity onward. They've never all been regathered again. And, and yet there is a promise of a Messiah coming. One like the Son of God who would come and who establish God's kingdom, no longer under Roman rule, but God's Messiah and King would come and be king over all the earth. This is their grand hope. And when Paul comes saying, that one, that's Jesus. 
They don't want to hear about it. Why? Because they become very good at coping in the comfortable. They become very good at coping with how things are. This is okay. This, like this, is good enough. Oh, it's not perfect. Things aren't, aren't great, but, you know, we've learned how to cope. We've learned how to get along. We can do okay like this. Don't rock our boat. One of the things they're worried about, well, first of all, Paul's draining people away from the synagogue. They're, they're, they're getting excited about this good news. But the other thing is if he stirs up too much trouble, like happened in Rome, it might cause some of the Jewish people to lose some of their particular standing. I don't want people to draw too much attention to us because we're comfortable with the way things are. I don't know what, what um, some of our traditions would be. I expect in a church like ours, it isn't terribly traditional in a lot of our practices. It might look maybe a little bit, our religious blinders might look something like this. We're, we're potentially more worried about our moral expectations for society than we are for the lostness of the people around us. Let me say that another way. Could it be that we're, we would not be so concerned about people around us who are lost if only they would at least behave better? I think so. If, if they won't be saved, if they won't be born again, at least couldn't you just keep the rules? And who knows, that might be good enough for God because it's good enough for us. We, those, those could be, in a church like ours, potentially our blinders about how we look at the people around us. I remember an old Bible teacher. This goes back to my Transworld Radio days when, when we were in Africa with a radio broadcasting mission. One of the broadcasters on the air was the Through the Bible program of J. Vernon McGee. And I remember hearing Vernon McGee say one time, he said, you know, if you are not a Christian, if you are not saved in, in Christ Jesus, then you might as well suck this world like a lemon for all that you can get out of it. Because it's all you've got. And we would say to them, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. It isn't going to change anything for eternity, but you really should behave better today. You know, sometimes God will allow. God does not want us to be comfortable with how things are as they are now. God will allow even some water in the ditch. Maybe you experienced that. Things were going okay. And then trouble came. And God would allow the enemy even to come along and bring some trouble. And in the midst of that trouble, what he's doing is he's making us less comfortable in the ditch. Why does, one of the reasons, one of the reasons misery happens among us is that God would not dare to allow us to be okay with how things are. God would not allow us to be satisfied with anything less than him. I think we see that even in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the process of life. And in, when, when illness comes and when sickness comes and, 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 and weakness comes upon us. And we're, we're almost getting ready for the better. And realizing in the process that this is not as good as we thought it was. This cannot be as good as we had hoped. That this mortal must put on what? Immortality. This corruption must put on incorruption. And death itself must be swallowed up in victory in life. God will not allow us to be satisfied with less. 
God will allow sometimes water in the ditch to remind us that it's not good enough here, it's not good enough yet. Beware of religious blinders that would settle down and be comfortable with how things are. We'll play church and everything will be okay. Another thing I learned from the passage is that God is sovereign over human scheming. Sometimes people will scheme against you. Sometimes people will plan against you. It's okay. Don't sweat it. Jesus himself said, I've got this. In fact, Paul doesn't even have to make an answer here. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, then the action begins to happen. I wish. I wish that would happen for me that way sometimes. You ever say something and you wish you could have those words back? That's kind of what was going on with me when I'm, when I'm talking to the kids, that, that uh, oh, Lord, help me know what to say. And sometimes what to say is nothing. Sometimes it's, it's better to not defend yourself and let, let somebody else rise to your defense. But, but oh, just, Lord, if that's your promise, your spirit would help me to know how to answer in the moment. Then one thing I know, I want to be walking in the spirit when the moment comes. That's the trouble, isn't it? If, if you're easily provoked, you don't know when the moment's coming. And all of a sudden, oh, if I'd seen that coming, if I'd known that was the moment, I'd, I'd have been ready. I could have thought that true. I could, have, I could have said this. But I don't know when the moment's coming. So all the more, I, I want to be walking with the Lord so he can give me a nudge and say, there's a moment coming. Be ready for it. When it happens, because otherwise, I'll blurt out on my own. It might be good. We might get lucky. But it might not be pretty, okay? Sometimes it might, it might seem clever to me, but it might be hurtful to somebody else. God is sovereign over human scheming even before Paul opens his mouth. There's a big issue at stake here. The issue is the Jewish people, of all the people in the Roman Empire, the Jewish people had a special deal. They were able to go about their own worship according to their law, which forbade them from participating in the worship of any Greco-Roman idols. Everybody else had to show their allegiance to the Roman Empire by giving offerings to, by participating in the worship of the Roman Emperor. So you showed your loyalty to Rome by bowing the knee to Rome in worship. Those were the rules. That's how it worked. But the Jewish people had a special exception to that. And Paul and the gospel have been fitting under this exception. And what the Jews are doing is they're taking some of their brothers and sisters, Israelites according to the flesh, and they're throwing them out of the synagogue and under the bus. And they're saying, hey, these guys aren't with us. These guys are, are encouraging worship among Jews and Gentiles that's against your Roman law as well as our Jewish law. They don't fit, because they're contrary to our law, they don't fit within our special Jewish exemption. And the potential of that is Christianity becomes an illegal religion within the empire that cannot be proclaimed, that cannot be promoted, that cannot be witnessed to without threat of persecution and trouble. Now those days are going to come, but that's what's at stake here in the infancy, in the early days, when the gospel has been expanding and turning the world upside down. And you've experienced times when the gospel seems to be allowed to go 
and to speed and run its course. And this was that day. And that's what's at stake. And Galileo is the guy. He's like the D.C. Court of Appeals, the second highest court in the, in, the, in the empire. If he lays out a precedent here that's against Paul and his message, that's going to influence all the other provinces because that's his standing in the Roman Empire. And yet before Paul can even give a word of defense, he says, you know, this is not a matter of my purview. Now maybe he's saying, you know, this is not something that's worth my time. This is your own little dispute. This is not a big dispute that should come out of your synagogue and you should bother the rest of us with. Maybe it's coming from that tone, or maybe it's of a tone, though, this is a matter of your own laws that I don't have the right to judge. And that's the way that our courts take these matters of faith typically today, that this is outside of our purview, this is outside of our pay grade. This is a matter of worship to God that we are not going to interfere on. And that's right, the government, you know, our country was founded on a, on a principle of separation of church and state. And that is not to separate the church from the government, it was to separate the government from the church. What is the history? Coming out of what's known as the Anglican Church in Rome, there was a state, or, or, or the Anglican Church in England, there was a state church in England that if you weren't along with the state church, the state-supported church that was ruled by the king, then if you weren't in line with them, then you were in trouble. And the early colonists in the U.S. did not want that. That's where separation in our founding fathers, that's where it's come from. It's not separating anything in the public from faith. It's protecting, it's guarding faith from the interference of the government. And that's what Gallio does here. He says, that's not my issue. God is working through Gallio's indifference one way or another. This is what God directing in the affairs of men. God's word says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He'll turn it whichever way he wishes. Our confidence is not in the political process. Our confidence is in our God. That's the third thing I learned from this. Political confidences are a double-edged sword. Every political season, the church is motivated again. The church is promised one more time, Christians, you need to get out there and support our party because if you don't, well, all hell's going to break loose in our country. Well, A, that's already happened. And B, we are not going to turn it around by confidence in one political party or the other. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be involved. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I'm saying, I, I, I encourage you to, to, from what you know in God's word, of what you know is best for society, that we participate in the political process. That means voting. For some of you, that means leading. That means participating. That means uh, running for office at times. But not with the confidence that if we only get enough Christians in government, we can make this country a Christian nation again. That's the false confidence. That was tried once before by a guy named Constantine, the Roman emperor. And what we ended up with was the church, by and large, ended up mingled in with the Roman empire and the emperor. And the result of that was not the best time, the, the uh, heaven on earth, the kingdom has come. That's now known as historians look back on it. We call that the Dark Ages. Okay, 
when the, uh, the church joins in with and then gets co-opted by the governing authorities. But what we ought to do as believers in the midst of society, what we ought to do is what God, through, through his prophets, through Jeremiah, he told the Israelites in Babylon, seek the peace of the city in which you find yourselves in. How do we contribute in our society in ways that are good for our society? I'm going to vote on initiatives. I'm going to vote for people that I think are going to serve our society best as I understand it. But guess what? My own perspectives are flawed. And because I can't go back to Scripture and say, well, this is how you should vote, then I can tell you then, this is how Scripture says you should vote. I don't pass my perspectives on to you about the ballot come Tuesday. We had to be involved, but that's not where our confidence is. That's my point. Those who live by the sword, Jesus told his disciples, will die by the sword. Those who live by the political process, when the church is advanced by the political process, the church will be hindered by the political process. If the church lives by politics, the church will die by politics. And so politics is a two-edged sword. We find that here right at this tribunal. The Jews united together, their rulers, their leaders, they came together with charges against Paul. And what happens? Well, Gallio says, you know, this is not my deal. And he drove them from the tribunal in, chapter six, in verse 16. And so in verse 17, they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. So the one who is perhaps leading the charge against Paul is the one who actually ends up receiving a punishment he had probably hoped that Paul would receive. Now, there's some confusion. Well, who are the they all who beat. Well, if you, the, um, there's some difference in one, in one version to another, but, but a lot of the earlier versions have added for clarity that the Greeks all um, grab Sosthenes and, and, and beat him there before the tribunal. That's, that's, that's what most people understand is happening here, that there was an animosity among Greeks and Romans toward the Jewish people because of the the way that they saw themselves. They, they set themselves a bit apart from society. And in some ways, they kind of thought them as God's chosen people, a little better than society at large. And, well, the population at large didn't like that. And sometimes, even today, as Christians, people will have a sense that, you Christians, you think you're better than us. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Maybe that's something about them that they know about them and they know something about the truth of what Christians believe that causes that animosity. I don't know. But that animosity will be there at times. And that's what happens here. The Greeks, this is a public place, out of the middle of the forum, and they grab hold of Sosthenes. And he, gets, he, he thought he would get rid of Paul that way. And he's the one to take a setback as well. Now, how are the Christians feeling? How are the, the Christians excited about that? The Christians in Corinth, they're all happy, they're excited. Yeah, look at him getting up. I hope not. I hope not. Because, well, some interesting things happen along the way here later that lead me to, to conclude that, that we need to stay tender-hearted toward those who oppose. People may be against you. They may, they may make your life miserable at work or at school or someplace. But stay tender-hearted to those who oppose you. Because the one who opposes you today may be opposing you because, as the Lord Jesus told Paul, it's hard to kick against the goads. When the Holy Spirit is after you and the Holy Spirit is pricking you, it's, it's, it's hard to keep kicking against that. 
And that may have been going on with Sosthenes. I don't know. Maybe he was so irritated with Paul's message that he brought a case before the governor because Paul's message was starting to get to him, even as it had gotten to the previous ruler of the synagogue. What we do know is in Paul's first letter to Corinth, several months later, when he writes back to this church from the city of Ephesus, at that time, there's somebody with him. The only person he mentions that is with him in that letter, in the first verse of his first letter to, to the Corinthians, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. The Sosthenes that the church in Corinth would know would most naturally be the same Sosthenes who had stood against them at the tribunal. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That the one who is Paul's enemy becomes Paul's brother. That's what the reconciliation of the cross does. It brings us back to our God in fellowship with him. And it brings us back into then a reconciled relationship with one another. Those who were enemies are now brothers. Sosthenes, our brother. And I think Paul particularly delighted in that because that was his own story too. I like that. I used to, as a teenager, roll my eyes at the notion of faith. I, I used to laugh off Christianity as death insurance. One who mocked, one who ridiculed. I'm not at all at the level of Paul in his antagonism against nor in his proclamation of the gospel. But like Paul, in some way I could say, only they say this, the one who before attacked or mocked the faith is now declaring it. That's God's doing. I love that. I don't know who's in your life. I don't know who's poking your buttons. I don't know who's pulling your chain. But I do know this. The Lord Jesus says, don't worry. I'm with you. I've got this. And just wait and see what he's going to do about it. You know, Paul goes, he, 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 he's ready to depart Corinth. And one of the last things he does in verse 18, at Centria, he cut his hair for he was under a vow. What is that all about? It's a Jewish vow. 30 days before appearing at the temple, which Paul is going to do, he's going to go to Jerusalem before he goes back to the church at Antioch. And 30 days beforehand, he needs to cut his hair because of this vow that he has made. And he's going to present his gift at the temple in fulfillment of the vow. And so that was according to the law and the tradition of the Jews. Not just the law, but the tradition. That was what they did. And here's Paul still putting themselves under the laws and the traditions of Israel in the worship of God in the temple, even as they have so harassed him from city to city to city in one synagogue after another. And yet, why does he do this? Because again, he says to his letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, to those who were under the law, I became as one who was under the law. Even though I've been freed in Christ, but I became as one who was under the law. Why? So that I become all things 
to all men. I meet people where they are. Is to, to the extent that I can, I go where they are. I draw closer to them that I might win them. Stay tenderhearted to those that oppose because we don't know what God will yet do. That's that call to the kingdom that we sang earlier. Did we sing that earlier? We sang that earlier. I couldn't remember if we sang it earlier because I know we're going to sing it again. And, and just the, the, what our Lord is going to do in us and through us because he says, I am with you. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can trust you. We thank you that we can trust you in the midst of even when people oppose us. They would stand against us, but Father, the, the press, the call of your spirit into your kingdom, into fellowship with you, is hard to resist. Father, would you use us then to extend that call? Would you use us like an invitation to Christmas jazz? Would you use us to extend an invitation into relationship with you through Jesus forever? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.